Lord, we are under your word. We are under, as Paul would say, under the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it will be proclaimed today. Father, as Paul said in today's chapter, that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to the people of God, it is the power of God. We pray for power this morning. We pray for the power in the delivery, but we pray in power that your power will change. That's what power means, is to change. May it change the person that we are. May it change the things that we value. May we change the things that we live for. May your power allow us to see you and Christ more clearly so that that change will lead us into loving the body more dearly. All these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we are continuing our series on 1 Corinthians. Um, and the reason why we studied, um, I mean, for those of you who missed it last week, um, we did a long introduction, so I urge you to come listen to it again. Um, we're studying 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians is all about how to mature the church. It's, it's Paul's instructions, instruction on how the church is to be. Paul's instruction is, to, is so that through this letter, the people in Corinth will, be, will become mature. And there is problem in the church of Corinth, and that's what we talked about last week. And the problem, the big problem in the church of Corinth is there were, there were internal divisions. There were internal factions. There were infighting, right? So as we talked about last week, what were the problems in the church of Corinth? Number one, there were divisions. There were cliques. There were factions. And not only were there factions, these factions were crawling, quarreling, ugh, my English. They were fighting against, with one another. Not only were they fighting, Another problem in the church of Corinth was that um, they were, people become spiritually prideful. God has blessed that church with many spiritual gifts, and holders of these gifts became prideful. They thought they were more special than the other people of the church. Another big problem of the church was pride, as I just said. Another big problem of the church was sexual morality. Right? They were adopting, adapting, adopting, the sexual norms of culture. Corinth was a hotbed of sexual activity, and they were, they, were, they were engaging in such behavior within the church. They were loveless, they were indifferent, and all in all, it was a mess. Corinth was internally rotting away. And if we just look back, just, not just look at the church of Corinth, but this internal rotting away, this internal strife is the way that society, countries, right, families are divided. The way that the enemy destroys a church, the way the enemy destroys a family, the way that the enemy destroys a country is not necessarily through external forces, but is through internal collapse. Look, I mean... Um, I realize terrorism is a major threat, and I realize there are a lot of you know, enemies attacking the U.S. I work two blocks away from the White House, so I work two blocks against Target Zero. Every terrorist wants to bomb my area, right? And it, it is a concern. But if you think about it, and this isn't a political statement at all, more so than external attacks and threats, 
Americans are killing each other, right? There are more gun violence that we do to one another than what terrorists do to us. It is, and even, with, with, even our society is crumbling because families are crumbling. Societies aren't crumbling because of major social problems. Society is crumbling because families are crumbling. That's how the enemy gets us. They don't, he doesn't necessarily attack externally. A more effective way of attack is through internal corrosion. And that is what is happening. So in the, in the history of the church, right, there were many, in the history of the church, the church was persecuted by the Roman government, by various governments. Even now, there are churches in China who are persecuted. But by the grace of God, it is not, but when the church is persecuted, historia has proven, churches grow when, it, when it's persecuted. Because the real Christian, when, when, when faith is about a matter of life and death, real Christians get together and they hold on to God. And therefore, the persecu- when the church is being persecuted externally, they thrive internally. What is killing the church is not external persecution, but infighting. Differences, gossips, slander, disagreements, unforgiveness. That's what's killed. That's what has, those things what killed the church more so than any other external threats. It is happening within the church of Corinth. It is happening in every church that, is no, longer, that no longer exists. And, and it happens in every church now. As much as I love your, our church, can we honestly say there is no internal strike within us? Can we honestly say there is, there is forgi- can we say there is, can we say that we're always forgiving and thinking and building up one another? Can we say there are no controversies among us? There's no gossip among us. There's no sly judgment among us. These things that we carry, the gossip, the judgment, the unforgiveness, these are the cancers that that will kill our church. More so than with the KM financial situation, more so than how many churches get built up in in this area, which is a good thing. It is internal rot that will destroy us. And that is why Paul wrote the church in Corinth to address the internal division, to address the internal divisions, to address the, address the rot. He gave instructions to the church of Corinth. But it is very interesting. The question is, how does Paul instruct them? Does Paul write them a laundry list of other problems, and under each problem he gives how to solve each problem? He doesn't necessarily do that. There are many practical problems that people in Corinth were facing. But rather than addressing each individual problem, he does something more. He gives them a theological, a comprehensive theological understanding of who God is and who Jesus Christ is. If you look at the letter of 1 Corinthians, it's more than the problems that this church is going through. The plan of salvation, the purpose of the resurrection, right? 
what the future wait for the people of God. All these things are addressed over and over and over again in this letter. More than individual problems. Why does Paul do that? Why doesn't just Paul address individual problems? Why does he go through this theological discourse about the sovereignty and the will and the gospel of Jesus Christ? He does it, I think. It's because the way you change people internally is not so much to give them practical advice of what to do, but what changes people internally, what changes churches internally, is truth. It's the full truth. The full truth of who God is. The full truth of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. The full truth of what the plan of salvation is. The full truth of what it means to be, what it means to be born again. These, contextualizing the problem within the context of truth is the thing that changes people. What changes people internally, it's not so much practical advice, but the Holy Spirit persuading people of the truth. Look, let's say the problem in our church is gossip. I have no idea. People don't tell me anything. I think there's gossip, but people don't tell me anything. They're just like whispering in the background. I have no idea what people are saying about one another. Evidently, people are saying stuff about me. I have no idea what, you're, what you are saying. People just tell me people are talking things about me, but they don't, give me, they, they don't go to the content. They don't give me exactly what they're saying. And I thank God that they don't. Because I don't want to know. But let's say that's the problem, gossip. How are you going to stop gossiping? By telling you, by me telling you not to gossip? By me giving you, like, you know, sociological, psychological studies of why gossip is wrong? That's not good. I, think, I don't think that's going to persuade you. What's going to persuade you from stop gossiping is we need to change the way we look at another human being. Rather than just individually addressing the issue of gossiping, our, cha- our view of what the other person is, that has to change. When we start to see the other person as the person made in the image of God, when we start to realize that the other person is the precious person whom Christ died for, if we are truly persuaded that the person that we're gossiping about is precious to the sight of God, who, that, that, that person Christ spilled his blood for, when we're persuaded that the other person is that valuable, that will cure us of our gossip. Unless the way we see each other change, it's not going to cure us of our division. That is why Paul, when he's instructing the Corinthians, he always brings it back to God. He always brings it back to how special the church is. He always brings it back to God's plan for the church. Because he wants the Corinthians to see each other through the lens of truth. Look, I'm doing a lot of like pre, like marital, what is it called? Premarital counseling? Yeah, that's what it's called. That's what it is. People are getting married. Like, people are getting married left and right. Praise God. And I always thought, because like the way I do premarital counseling is it's very theological, right? There's a book that I use, and it's just, I'm just having a Bible study more or less. And in the back of my mind, I always kind of felt guilty because other pastors, you know, they're more practical advice. You know, they give you the love language test. What's your love language? Is it a sense of touch? Is it a sense of gift? Like, I don't know. 
and like, you know, other pastors like observe how you argue and give practical advice, right? And I don't do that. And I feel always guilty of the fact that I didn't, because I don't know how to do it, right? And I don't think there's anything wrong with giving practical advice that way. But I realized as I was preparing with a sermon is this. Even though I can give practical advice, because I've been married 21 years, even though I can give you practical advice how to make a strong marriage, fundamentally, what makes a strong marriage is that the way that the husband and the wife view each other has to change. It has to change every day. You have to be persuaded by the truth every day. Right? In order for the, for the husband and wife's married relationship to work. Right? Like this week. Like, you know, we sang that song. Like, King of Kings, we just sang that song, right? I asked you so we can, whether we can sing that song. Why? Because I've listened to that song over and over and over again this week. Right? God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of Kings. That song got to me over and over and over again. And there is a particular portion of that song that got to me this week. It's one of the last verses of the song. It says, in his death, in, it is in his, what is it, in his blood, in his death, in his freedom, I am free. For the love of Jesus Christ has resurrected me. That verse was playing in my mind over and over and over again. And you know what happens when that verse plays in your mind over and over and over again? I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better lawyer. It isn't me following a plan of a book that says how to be a better husband. That's not what happens. It happens is when the Holy Spirit like, influenced my mind over and over and over again what truth is. That leads me to be a better husband. It is a persuasion of truth that leads us into become better human beings. It is a persuasion of truth that makes us love and forgive and build each other up. That's why Paul is writing this letter. And, it is, and the reason why we're studying this letter, it is so that through the studying of the letter, God will persuade all of us the truth all over. God will persuade us of the truth. Over and over and over again. Right? So that we will mature. We will be mature Christians. God's will for those who are saved is to become mature Christians. God's will for you, if you are saved, is for you to become mature. How do you become mature? Through bearing the burdens of the church. There are many churches in the area, right? There are many, I mean, in the, there's so many churches in the area. We have a church down here. We have a church down the road. Many churches. In fact, my home church when I was growing up is like right down the road. And people, there's so many churches because people, when they have problems, what do they do? They kind of, they oh, I don't like this church, so I'm going to tap out. So they move to another church. When they have problems, the first instinct that people have is, I'm leaving. Right? But I'm afraid that's not a really mature way to do things. 
giving up everything, giving up where God has called you, and just moving to another place, hoping that the new place will, will better suit your needs. It is not a mature way to approach faith. I'm not saying, you know, you shouldn't change churches. There are many reasons why you should change churches, right? There are. Like, like for example, like Calvin and Julian moved to Fredericksburg, Virginia. I can't expect Calvin and Julian to drive up here every week when they live in Fredericksburg, Virginia. That, that's not going to work out. Right? And there are, you know, reasons, there are legitimate reasons. If I stop preaching the prosperity gospel, if I start listening to Joe Alstein and say that's the way to do it, and start to preaching the gospel of Joe Alstein, you should leave. There are legitimate reasons to leave the church. But the reason why you shouldn't leave is because I can't get along with these people. Or these people don't fill my needs. So I'm going to look for someone better. That's not the road to maturity. There are churches in this area that grew, like, the, the, like I was talking to Pastor Ujin, and he's talk, we're talking about the Amazon effect of churches, where small churches are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Big churches are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Because everyone who went, who, where it's a small church, right? That when you're a small church, you see the ugliness of each individual. So they can't deal with those ugliness of those churches, so people leave those churches and go to a big church. So big churches are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because people who were hurt by a small church, by hurt I mean like they just couldn't get along with the people of that church. They were hurt by the other church and they go to the big church. I mean, dead honest with you, I don't envy those churches. Because what good can come from a church made up of immature people? What good can come from a church that says, oh, that church is, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm going to dip out. I'm going to go somewhere else. How can that person ever grow in maturity? You grow in maturity through bearing each other's burdens, by toughing out the conflicts, by striving to forgive, by striving to build bridges, by striving to love. That's how you become a healthy church, a healthy Christian. That's how your marriages become strong. Your marriages don't become, your marriages become strong when you actually work it out. Not dipping when things get tough. Paul wrote the letter to the church in Corinth so that, he, so that the people with differences will work their issues out in the light of truth. Do you like our church? Do you love our church? Do you have problems with the people of this church? The solution is not dipping. The solution is working through it. Because that's God's will for you. God's will is never to go to a more, go to a more convenient place. It is to practice the gospel with one another. That's the will of God. Let's go specifically. What is the problem that the church of Corinth is going through right now? 
one, the first problem that Paul deals with in chapter 1 is there were factions, like we said last week, in the church. Right? Some say, you know, a little bit of background, right? Paul came to the church in Corinth. He preached in that city for 18 months. Right? And after 18 months, to continue his missionary journey, he leaves the church. Right? And God sends great teachers. The, the, the one teacher that came after him was a guy named Apollos. And Apollos was great. He was a man of knowledge, very smart man. He was a man of passion, right? He could, he could preach. He was a lovely man. After Apollos, they said, Peter, the apostle, you know, Jesus is right and Jesus says, Peter, on you I will build my, build my church. Peter comes to visit, right? Peter is one of the leaders of the church, founders of the church, and he visits. So there were these men who visited the church. And after, we, when the, after these men like, visited the church, the church became like, they, they started having factions. One group of Corinthians people said, well, I'm a follower of Paul. I want to be loyal to Paul because he's the father of our church. I'm going to be loyal to him. The other people said, oh, the Apollos guy was lovely. I agree with everything about what Apollos says. I'm going to be a follower of Apollos. The other group of people said, whoa, 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 Paul and Paulus is great, but they're not the original, right? They're not, they're not Jesus' number one disciples. I'm going to, be, I'm going to follow, follow Peter. Cephas today is, an, is another name for Peter, right? So I'm going to follow Peter. And there's another group of the section that says, whoa, 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 you know, let's not get crazy. I don't need Paul. I don't need Apollos. I don't need Peter. I want, to, I want just direct connection with Jesus Christ, so I'm a follower of Christ. There were these factions. In a sense, having factions is almost inevitable. Having cliques is almost inevitable. Because human beings, by our nature, are attracted to people that we agree with. Right? People in different small groups of our church are really close to one another. I don't think that's sin. Right? I don't think that's sin. Right? The people in our, in our, in our church have different cliques. I don't want to say click different small groups and, and they really enjoy one another. It's, it's a good thing. The problem with the church of Corinth was they started quarreling. They started fighting. These people started fighting with one another. But let's think about like the issues what they were fighting about. Paul, Peter, Apollos. They taught the same things about God about Jesus Christ, about the way of salvation. The major tenets of faith, major doctrines of faith, these men all agreed. None of them were false teachers. And God used them mightily to bring salvation to the hearers of the God's word. The fighting was over secondary issues. Maybe Paul and Apollos differed in a minute detail of, of theology. Maybe there were stylistic differences. Maybe Apollo was a more eloquent speaker than Paul. Whatever it is, these things that they were fighting over were not the main issues. They were secondary issues. Things that ultimately didn't matter. They were unforgiving, they were quarreling, they were slinging dirt at one another, not over major things of faith, but small, 
secondary issue. If you look at every church quarrel, fighting, it's not over major issues. It's not all, look, I mean, a good buddy of mine at work, like I said, is a liberal Christian. He and I defer, like, have differences of what sin is, what salvation is, who Jesus Christ is, what the plan of God is. We defer in every major tenets of faith. We have differences of opinion. Therefore, him and I cannot belong to the same church. But most Christian quarrels within the church is not over those foundational issues. It is over, I don't know, where we're going to spend the money. It is over, I don't know, what time we're going to have the church service. It's over small issues. Small issues, plus human pride, plus human self-centeredness and unforgiveness, equals unforgivable fighting. If there is quarreling among us today, if there is unforgiveness within us today, whether it is in marriage or it is within this church, how important is that issue that you're fighting about? How important is it? Your issue with your husband. Maybe your issues with the husband is like, maybe he doesn't put the toilet seat down. By the way, I noticed that I always put it down. I'm a good husband. But maybe your husband never does it, never puts it down. And you hate him for it. Like, you're so unforgiving for over it. It's small, minor issues that don't really matter. What matters is you take the small issue, add your pride and your self-centeredness and unforgiving spirit onto it, and voila, you bake a huge evil cake. That's what's going to happen in the church of Corinth. Over secondary issues, minute issues, the church is divided. How sad is that? It gotten so bad that Chloe, one of the members of the church, sends one of her family members to Paul to tell them about the pro- tell him of the problem. Chloe loves the church. Chloe couldn't stand the fighting, so Chloe spends her money. Chloe spends her money sending one of her family members to Paul. Paul was like far away. It took I heard it took, it took three days for them to travel by ship to where Paul is. So Paul, so Chloe bought a like, ship ticket so to send one of her family members to all, to, on a three-day journey far away to go to see, tell Paul what's going on. It's like Chloe you know, buying, buying someone, one of her children a plane ticket to Korea, right? If Paul is in Korea, to tell Paul what is happening in the church. What is the practical implication of this? It is through Chloe's letter that these issues were brought out. The practical implication of this is if there is quarreling among you, you should bring it out to the church. You should tell me. Most importantly, go tell Pastor Ujin. Right? Go tell the deacon. Quarreling, fighting, divisions 
must be addressed. It must become to light. When you don't address it, when you don't bring it to the church, when you, when you are in, in, engaging in internal skirmishes on your own, when you, when you are just engaging that hatred in the dark, it will fester. It will become bigger in your mind than it actually is. You need to come to us rather than gossiping about it. Rather than giving up on people. You need to tell it, tell to us. Not so that we will solve it, but so that we can bring it out, so that we, so there can be a resolution. We can pray for it. We can counsel through it. We can, so we can, we, can, we can mend the relationship. That's how it's supposed to work. Look, I, was, I love all small groups equal. All of you are my favorite small group. When I say you're my favorite small group, I really meant it at the time when I say it, right? So there is no favorites, zero favorites. If you think your small group is my favorite, you're wrong and you're right, right? So let's not get all judgy when I mention like a particular small group, right? All jelly and stuff, right? So I was at a particular small group this Friday. Man, that was a good, that was a very healthy small group. And one of the things that was healthy was I was kind of shocked how raw and honest people were with one another. They were like airing their dirty laundry in front of one another. Like, like husband and wife, like the thing that they were fighting, they were talking about it within the small group. Like, what? What? Other small groups are very like contained. This small group, blah. And I, to- I asked them, are you guys okay talking to like this with one another? The beauty of that small group is this, because they're talking about each other's brokenness publicly in the small group setting. The problem becomes contextualized, right? When, when, it's just, when you're holding it out internally, right, when you just, like, hold on to it, it grows. But when you actually tell the people about it, it's very liberating. That's, how it has, that, that's what it's supposed to be. Chloe did a favor to the church by narking them on Paul. Right? She, she narked on him, on, on them, right? But it's a good thing that she did. Because that's how the church grows. So all your grievances, I'll like, shoot up Pastor with this phone number right here, right? Tell me, tell Pastor Eugene, tell the deacons so that we will, like, help. We will pray over it, and we will counsel through it. That's how it's supposed to be. So these people are arguing, killing each other over secondary issues. Over secondary issues that don't really matter. Right? I mean, not, not that they don't matter. Look, I mean, Pastor Eugene and I, for example, differ on the meaning of baptism. We, we do. Not differ on the meaning of baptism. It's just we look at baptism in a little bit different way. But I'm not going to say, you're not a Christian, Pastor Eugene. He's not going to say, you're not a Christian, Pastor Jay. We're not going to do, do, like, do, do over that. Like, there are differences in the way churches do the Lord's like, communion. Other churches do it like we do, where we have people come up to the Lord's communion. And other churches, they distribute the plate, Right? And there are, there's theological points of why, why we're doing that. There's differences, 
But we're not going to say people who do it differently than we do are not Christian. Because we agree on the major tenets of the faith. That's what Paul says. The way you resolve differences is have the same mind and the same judgment. What he means by the same mind and have the same judgment is you guys need to be united and be reminded of the, of the truth that unites you. Rather than focusing on the things that divide you, always focus on the things that unite you, the major tenets of the faith, who God is, what he has done for you, how he feels, looks at the church, what the future for, all, for, for, for his people like, are, wait, like, are waiting, waiting for. These major things, that's what you guys need to focus on and agree on. That's what he means to have the same mind and the same judgment. Paul is saying, it is in the name of Jesus Christ, he says, that you got to do this. Paul invokes the name, in the name of Jesus Christ, you need to be united, you need to have the same mind, the same judgment. He is invoking the name of Jesus Christ. Invoking the name of Jesus Christ is a very, very important thing. Because Paul is a Jew, and Jews do not invoke the name of God. Us, because we're lateral blasphemers, we say the name of God all the time. Oh, we say the name of God all the time. We misuse the name of God all the time. Not the Jew. For the Jewish person, the name of God is holy. Exodus chapter 3, God reveals his name to Moses. God says, basically his name is, I am, right, who I am. His name is Yahweh. But when the Jew, Jewish person reads the scriptures, and when they run into the word Yahweh, they don't read it. They replace it with the word Adonai, which means Lord. Because the name of God is holy. You have to be very careful when you utter the name of God. Leviticus chapter 24, a blasphemer was put to death. Because that young man misused the name of God. The name of God is very holy in the mind of a Jewish person, as it should be with all of us. So when Paul invokes the name of Jesus to instruct the Corinthians about like, what he wrote today, he's saying it is from Christ himself. It is Christ himself who is telling you these things. And what is Christ telling you? To be united by ha- and not divided by having the same mind and same judgment. United but always going back to what unites you. Agree each other doctrinally. Agree each other the sovereignty and the awesomeness and the wonderful magnificence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how he feels, how he loves the church. These things you need to be mindful of. And these things you need to filter all things through. Look, like, so, like, you know, Ricky gave me a gallon of uh, distilled water, right? I'm a big water drinker, so he gave me a gallon of distilled water. And when he first gave it to me, I go, okay, I don't know, I'm going to drink it or something. I go, okay. It's a huge jug, right? It's heavy. By the way, I have that jug in the office, Ricky. Anyway, so 
I brought it home like Friday night, and I was like, you know, put, I put it on the countertop. And I go, on Saturday morning, I was thirsty. So I, I'm, I'm going to drink it. So I drank it. It was so good. Not only was it good, I thought it was good. All my family thought it was good. So we loved that distilled water. For those of you who don't know what distilled water is, distilled water is like, I, the process is that you use heat, electricity heat, to evaporate all the impurities on the, in the water, right? And you are left, after five hours, you're left with like a gallon of pure water. It is a water without any impurities in it. Before this, this I'm going to buy the distiller, by the way. It costs a lot of money, but, you know, you know I'm rich. So, so, like, I'm going to, so, like, you know, you're going to, so, the distilled water, like, before you distill it, right, water looks like water, right? I usually drink it from the tap because I thought there's minerals and stuff, right? So, I get all the minerals through tap water, right? Don't judge me, you rich people, right? But tap water looks exactly like distilled water. There's no difference in visual. Visually, there's no difference. But when you filter it through the distiller, the impurity, you can see the residue of impurity lying in the bottom of the distiller. To get a pure water, you need to filter it through the distiller. That is Paul, what Paul means when he says, have the same mind and judgment, which means in everything, especially in relationship with other people, dis- distill it through the lens of truth. In your dealing with each other, and, and especially with like, how you feel about you and how you feel about other people, has to be distilled, purified, has to go through the lens of truth. Christians are not free to think of people and ourselves as we wish. Unbelievers like trust in their visions and their perception and make judgment based on it. They think what they see, what they hear, what they think, they think that's the truth. And they make decisions based upon what they think is true. The way they deal with each other is the same thing. They look at what other people is doing and they have biases and judgments and preconceived notions and they think their biases and their preconceived notions are the truth and because they rely upon that, they deal with one another accordingly, which is their broken way. Christians are not free to think of others as we please. We're not. Christians are called to distill, to purify our vision, especially with other people, through the lens of truth, through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what you're called to do. You may think your judgment is true and good, but it's not. That's what Paul is saying. You may think that you're wise, and you may think your judgment is accurate. It's not. Distill it through the lens of truth. You need to. Especially, not only with other people, but with yourself too. 
the way you feel about yourself. It's not true. The way sometimes you have good moments and sometimes you have depressed moments, right? Sometimes I think I'm the best lawyer in the world. Sometimes I think I'm the worst lawyer in the world. It's true. Sometimes I'm a really good father. Sometimes I'm a horrible father. It, there's peaks and like trots. How I feel about myself and the judgment that I pass about myself, that's not true. What's true is how God sees me. What's true is not how I feel about my wife, what, the, what my biases against my wife is. That's not, my biases are not true. The gospel is true. When I take off my glasses, I, I can't see any of you. When I put them on, I can see you clearly. The gospel is a glasses through which you look at everything. The way you look at yourself, the way you look at other people, the way you look at your job, the way you look at your recreation activities, the way you look at your girlfriend and boyfriend. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, right, says you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he says. Be filled with, he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's, by being filled with the Holy Spirit means you need to be influenced by the Holy Spirit every day. Right after he says you need to be influenced by the Holy Spirit every day, you know what he talks about right after? Marriage. Right after he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit, he talks about, he ta he talks about husband and wife submitting to one another. Why did he do that? Uh, this is from Tim Keller, by the way. Why did he do that? It is to convey the point that you cannot do marriage unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit, unless you're influenced by the Holy Spirit. You cannot do marriage unless you do it. You are, you are constantly being influenced by Him. We need to filter each other out. Look, I'm glad that my wife's not here. So this week, my wife did a very love. My, my wife loves me so, right? Gives me cooks me things that I are, I, I, you know, like everything that I like, she cooks. I love shrimp, and she, because I love shrimp, she bought me these huge shrimps. They're so big, it's like a bio, bio, biology experiment. Like, you see all the organs, and you see the, the, I did not know shrimps had organs, but they do, evidently. You see the manure, it's huge, right? And my wife cooks for me because I love shrimp, right? She's so good. And because she loved me, right, she cleaned my room for me, my, 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 my den, right? But the problem with my den is this. It is, or, it is a mess, but I know exactly where everything is. You know that? You know what I mean? It's a stereotype, but it's true. Like when I do my laundry, because I'm a, you know, I'm a good husband, I do my own laundry. When I do my laundry, for example, I don't fold my laundry. I just dump it on the floor of my den. Because what I'm wearing was all on the floor one this morning. I dump it on the floor because I know where everything is, right? Every morning, I wake up with a vision. This is what I want to wear, right? I'm a 16-year-old girl that way. I want to wear this. I wake up with a vision, right? The other day, I woke up with a vision. This is what I want to wear at work. And when I went to my room, all the pile was gone. And I told my wife, 
can you not clean my room? Oh, I forgot about the shrimp, right? I forgot, about, I forgot about all the time she's nice and kind to me, and I say, can you not clean my room? And my wife, how did my wife took it? She took it did she take it well? No, she yelled at me. Did I yell back? Of course I didn't, because I'm a pastor for crying out loud. But the way that I said, don't clean my room, in such a way that it wasn't a nice way. And I was driving to work. And I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit that says, you don't talk to your wife like that. You don't talk to your wife like that. She is mine, he says. She has been born again, he says. You can't treat her like that. Okay, I'm sorry. That's being influenced by the Holy Spirit. You don't filter, I don't, you can't filter the other person strictly in terms of your biases and prejudice and perceptions. That's not the call. The call is filter all things, especially to the people that you're closest with through the lens of scripture. That's the call. Filter all things. Specifically, what are some of the things that Paul, uh, Paul tells, instructs the Corinthians to filter? And this kind of long, so I'll, I'll go briefly. One of the things that we always have to occupy our minds, Paul says, number one, the first thing that Paul mentions in chapter one is the faithfulness of God. Remember last week? Paul mentions himself. Paul mentions Sosthenes. Paul mentions the Corinthians. And he says, me, Sosthenes, you, all of us were saved, not by your own doing, but by the will of God. All of us are not deserving. All of, Paul was on his way to persecute more Christians. Sosthenes was a head priest of the temple that kicked Paul out. Paul out. Corinthians were sex-crazed idolaters. But the sovereignty of God sanctified you and made you his. The person that you disagree with, that you hate, that you gossip about, is a person whom God has called to be his. It is over his sovereign will that he called them to be his. He belongs to them. Filter your vision of, of other Christians, your spouse, other people, through that truth. But not only says this, what does Paul also say? Paul says, I'll go quickly. Paul says, da 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 He says in verse 13, Christ is not divided. He's referring to the fact that the church is the body of Christ. The body of Christ, as you know, is not a building. It's not a 501c3 religious institution. It is the local body of believers. It is each individual believers coming together. That's the church of God. And Paul is saying the church of God is not divided, which means the church is the body of Christ. And as a body of Christ, church dwells within his body, which means he dwells in the heart and lives of each individual Christian. So the person that you're gossiping about, that you're hating, that you're unforgiving, is a person in whom Christ dwells. 
there's everyone in this room, I can honestly say God is doing something in their lives. Christ is dwelling in them, and God is doing something in them. And I know that's true. But when you're gossiping and when you're hating that person, you're hating and gossiping about the person in whom Christ dwells. You are perhaps interfering with the work of Christ in that person's life. How can you say that you love him and interfere and cause pain to the person that he's working in? Because that person didn't satisfy your sense of importance. Whatever it is, whatever that person did to make you mad. Is it worth interfering the work of Christ? Is it worth hating the person in whom Christ dwells. Third, Paul says, he says the, the Corinthians were not baptized by Paul. He says, I didn't baptize, you were not baptized in my name. Implication meaning, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What is baptism? Baptism is not a religious order that says, you know, baptism is not just a religious, you know, rite of passage that you go through, Right? Baptism is not when you turn 13 or 14 or 15, the, the, your parents hear the announcement from the church, we're, going, we're, we're confirming kids, you know, next week. If you want to confirm your kids, let them take a class. And, you take, okay, and your parents ask you to take a class. And you go, okay, I'll take the class. And you take the class. And you just say yes to the pastor's question. Then you get confirmed and baptized. That's not what baptism means here. Baptism is a sign is a confession before the church and God that you have been united with Christ in his death and that you are raised with Christ with the resurrection. Baptism is for people who have experienced the resurrecting power of God. That there has been a nature shift. There has been a mind shift. There has been a loyalty shift. You were once in darkness, but now you are in light. And when the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of God and the word of God and the church of God, that you experience new birth, it is those people who get baptized. People who are baptized in the name of Christ are people in whom Christ died for and those whom he resurrected. Do you know the most beautiful thing in the entire universe is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The song that we sang, when Jesus rose from the dead, all the creation marveled and wondered all. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the way he loves sinners and the way he resurrects sinners, that's the most beautiful truth in the entire universe. And the first people who have been baptized are the beneficiary of that beautiful, wonderful love. Will you gossip and destroy such people? You Christian, will you gossip and sling mud and pass judgment on the recipient of such wonderful love? Your perception about that person is more true than the beauty of the gospel? isn't. Your opinion of that person matters so little, you know. 
What matters is the gospel. Husband and wives is the fact that he doesn't lift the toilet seat up. Is that more important truth than the fact that your husband was saved by the blood of Christ? The fact that he broke a promise. Is that more important than the fact that Christ died for your husband and he made your husband new? What about your judgment matters much more than the gospel? Your opinions don't really matter that much in the light of things, in the grand scheme of things, right? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were baptized in the name of Christ. All of us who are in the church, who belong to the church, who are saved people, have been baptized in the blood of Christ. You treat each other accordingly to that truth. The last thing Paul says to remind, he says in verse 18 and 19, the gospel is the power of God. Which means Paul came to the Corinthians. The way these Corinthians became saved was by through Paul's preaching. Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness to the world. And it's true. The fact that Jesus Christ died and was, was rose again, that is foolishness in the eyes of the world. But through it, these people were changed in real ways. That's a demonstration of the power of God. It's time to be mean for me to be a little bit mean here. A little bit, I'm being mean just a little bit. It is brought, has been brought to my attention that some of you, and I have no idea, people don't tell me anything. It's, it's, I'm not thinking about any of you because I don't know who you are. It has been brought to my attention. The people are on their phones when I preach. And this isn't to condemn that behavior. But may I say, may I ask you in the most loving, gentle way, maybe you're on your phone because what I'm saying up here is nonsense to you. Maybe you are more interested in the Facebook status, Instagram statuses of other people because that is more real to you than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, and I, I'm telling you that's how you're supposed to think. The world thinks that, that, that way. What we say here, what we're seeing here is absolute nonsense. If I say five steps to how to get a better girlfriend, you're not going to be on your phone. If I give you five steps on how to get into Harvard, you're not going to be on your phone. We're on our phones because the gospel of Jesus Christ is foolishness. But Paul says that's the power of God. The people that are part of the church, Paul says, they experience the power of God because as they heard the gospel, they were transformed. They're the recipients of the power of God through the gospel. Are you going to treat them harshly? That the miracles of God, Paul says, Paul says, are you going to treat such miracles harshly? These things are the ways in which you look at other people. These truths, 
God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty, God's power, the baptism of Christ, in Christ. That is how you look at everyone. Therefore, be very careful in how you treat other people, what you say about other people. God will destroy the people who, who is harsh to, to his people. Look, as fathers with daughters would know, if one dude, like, hurts our daughters, you know, if they, if they hurt our sons, you know, you know, you'll, you'll make a man out of them, so it's okay. But if they, if, if they hurt our da- daughters, oh, we will, right? Like, one, one time, Caleb was bullied when he was, for, like, fourth grade. I spend my time all morning Googling how to sue parents of bullies. If you go after my children, I'm not an angry man. I'm a peace-loving man. But it will incite anger and wrath within me. If you mistreat those whom God has called, those whom Christ has died for, those whom are the recipients of the power of God, those whom in whom Christ dwells. You think he's going to be okay with you? You think he still loves you? He's perfectly okay with you? Be very careful how you treat your husbands because your husband and wives, they are, they are the children of God as well. Be very careful how you treat one another, what you say about each other, especially behind their backs. Strive to love and forgive, for that's the will of God for you. Let's pray. Is there division amongst us? Is there unforgiveness amongst us? Is there gossip among us? Are there divisions, indifference, pride amongst us? What Paul teaches today is clear. It's that is against God's will. And those, these things are, very, are, are, are the very enemies of the church. If you had unforgiving spirit, if you are unable to love, if you are gossiping and, and, and destroying people behind their backs, if you are gossiping and destroying the very people in whom Christ has purchased and died and, whole, and, and, and loves and, and, and cherishes, I pray that you'll repent. I pray that you'll ask God that you will be able to filter everyone, including yourself, through the lens of truth so that you will treat others, especially the people in this church, of how Christ, the way Christ wants you, to, wants you to treat and love them. Let us pray for these things, and we'll continue. Father, we confess, Lord, that before we confess anything, we thank you for this church. Father, this church is a place in whom Christ dwells. This church is a place in whom you have, from before the foundation of the world, established us to be yours. 
the people that we're worshiping together, the people who are members of the body, Lord, are the ones in whom you have, in whom, in whom, for whom Christ was sent, is for whom Christ endured the cross, is for whom Christ was resurrected from the grave. These people amongst us, the, 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 the Father, you have established this church and you are dwelling within us, amongst us. And that is something amazing. But we confess, Lord, that we have not treated each other as preciously as you, have as you consider us. We so easily gossiped. We so easily passed judgment. We so easily were unforgiving. We so easily used one another without giving any thought to how you think about them. Such thinking is not from you, it's from the devil. We pray that you give us filtered eyes. We pray that we will experience the power of God every day. May, you, may, your, may your power shift our vision and our thinking from the things and from, from, from the bias, from personal biases and, 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 and prejudices. Shift our thinking and make us see things from your light. Change our affections. Change how we value other people. Change where we see ourselves. So that we will live in accordance to your truth and not, not according to our biases. Forgive, our, forgive us for just being so harsh with one another, for being so harsh with you. We pray that you continually to build this church. All these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.